This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Today, we're joined by Dr. Dean Baker. He co-founded the Center for Economic and Policy Research back in 1999. His areas of research include housing and macroeconomics, intellectual property, social security, Medicare, and European labor markets. He's the author of several books, including Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. His blog, Beat the Press, provides commentary on economic reporting. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Dean Baker. Dean Baker, thank you so much for joining us, for passing judgment with us. And I want to start by talking about what you hope people understand about the current state of the economy. In one of your most recent posts, uh, the title was New York Times columnist misleadingly trashes the economy to explain why people view economy negatively. Could you talk to us about how we should view the current state of the economy? Are the quote unquote fundamentals strong? Are there significant weak places? What should be our takeaway for what the economy looks like today? Yeah, it's a great question. It's been striking to me and many economists that you have a lot of people think negatively about the economy. And one of the things that makes it even more striking, I'll come to why I think it's a good economy in a second, but most people actually rate their own finances as pretty good. So if you look at, you know, because usually it's in a bad way of questions and they're put in different ways by different surveys, but something like how are your personal finances? And most people rate those pretty good and not worse than they were four, five, six years ago when they rated the overall economy good. So people are looking at the, their, their own situation. I'm doing well. But then they look at the economy and say, oh, that's really bad. And that, you know, that, that's hard for me and other economists to understand. Now, okay, why do I think the economy is good? Well, there's a number of indicators we typically look at. Most importantly, in my view, the unemployment rate. Can people get jobs? Most people rely on work for most of their income. And can you get a job? That's a really big deal. And the unemployment rate's been under 4% now for 22 straight months. We haven't seen that since the late 60s. That's really extraordinary. And again, confusion on this. Among people who should know better. You know, I've had arguments with people and they go, okay, well, unemployed, you know, 4%, that's, you know, 6 million people or thereabouts. Suppose we're 5%, suppose we're 6%. We're still talking about a very, but no, you're misunderstanding the labor market. Every single month, we have somewhere around 6 million people who lose or leave their job. And the vast majority are looking for other jobs. And their new entrants are also looking for jobs. So whether we have a low unemployment rate and people could easily find a new job, or we have a high unemployment rate, we really have to struggle. That's a world of difference. So it's not just that, yeah, we have fewer people looking for work. People who have a bad job could leave it and get a better job. And we see that in a really big way. And, you know, another survey that shows the impact of that conference board um, has been doing a survey for almost 40 years asking people about workplace satisfaction. It's record high. And, you know, to my mind, it's a big deal. People spend a lot of their lives at work. And, you know, if you 
you're unhappy there, that's a bad thing. And if you could say, oh, no, it's a good, good story and the record numbers say good story. So I start with the unemployment rate. But then obviously, you know, can people keep up with inflation? And we know there was a big surge of inflation in 221 into 222. That's largely come down. And what we could say, and, you know, I beat up the data with a lot of other people. We've all looked at the same numbers and we get the same result. Wages have outpaced inflation. And the biggest gains have been those at the bottom. People working in low-paid positions like restaurant workers, hotels. Those people have actually done the best. I'm not going to say they're doing great. You know, someone's earning $20 an hour. I'm not going to try to tell them you're doing great. But it's just by comparison. Where were you before the pandemic? Where are you today? You're doing better. Um, other issues. Um, Big, big issue of home ownership. We understand that. You know, mortgage rates have gone way up. They're coming down. That's a good story. But they're way higher than what they were, uh, certainly, you know, in 221, you know, the peak of the pandemic. But also they're higher than what they were before the pandemic. Then they were around 4% or so. We're currently, as I say, it peaked at over 8. We saw just 107. Um, I'm hoping it'll come back down. It's not going to go to 4, but it might go to 5 or somewhere thereabout. Um, and if people have good wages, good jobs, they'll be able to get homes. But that is a problem, no doubt about it. But I should point out, two-thirds of people are homeowners. So they're okay in that sense. So so anyhow, so those are sorts of things I look at. Are, are people's wages keeping up with inflation and they get a job? Homeownership's, of course, important. But again, most people are homeowners. And actually, we saw a big rise in homeownership in 220, 221, 222. It's above pre-pandemic levels. And that's across the board. That's for moderate income people, for blacks, for young people across the board. Homeownership's up. So most of the things I would look to in the economy are definitely going in the right direction. So that's why I say it looks like a good economy. Is there... A little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy when we think it's not a good economy and maybe more largely, this is something that I thought about as we talked about a long time ago, I was an econ major and the crossover between psychology and economics. And if we think that we're not doing as well as we are, or if we think that we're spending more money than we're making, but we actually aren't. Or if we just in general, you know, our outlook on consumer prices, on our ability to own a home, et cetera, et cetera. If all of this is in fact worse than it actually is, can we, with our pessimism and negativity, turn the economy? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a real story that actually can't happen. And again, this is another item that many of us, uh, I'm saying us economists have looked at, and we go, well, people don't seem to be acting like they think the economy is bad. So we have data on consumption and consumption levels are actually pretty high. And what's striking there is not just that they're high, but it's what, are, what are people spending their money on? So I compared, I looked at a few months ago, I doubt it would be different today. The biggest increases in, 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 in spending, and this is adjusted for inflation. So the biggest increase in spending by category on things like jewelry, watches, um, all-terrain vehicles, motors, you know, things that we, we don't think of as necessities. So not only are people spending a lot, which, again, you wouldn't expect would be the case if they're really pessimistic, but they're spending on things that, you know, certainly look like um, luxury is the best word, but not necessities. This isn't, uh, we don't see big increases in spending on food. Again, I'm adjusting for inflation. So this is actually getting more of these items. So you could have a story where everyone stops spending because they're pessimistic, but we're seeing the opposite. 
The other side of that, and this goes back to Keynes, uh, that, that this idea of animal spirits, and here we're talking about the business side. So if businesses are really pessimistic, they think we're about to go off a cliff, then you're not going to invest. No one's going to spend a lot of money developing new software or building a new factory, whatever it might be, if they think we're going to but we're seeing, again, the opposite, that in business investment has been pretty good uh, companies. And here, too, there's a real disparity because there's a, there's a association, National Federation of Independent Businesses. They're smaller businesses. And all their, their statements about confidence are really negative. So they're all saying, oh, I think that, you know, but then you go, okay, well, what are your investment plans? Oh, I'm going to more, invest more this year than last year. So, so there's a real separation between what people are saying and what they're doing. And they aren't acting like they think the economy is about to go off a cliff. Is that because of lack of education about what actually contributes to the economy? Is it about lack of reporting of what economic factors actually indicate? I mean, you spoke very clearly about unemployment rates, about wages, about home ownership. Do people misunderstand or... If we look back maybe 10, 20 years, is there something to the idea of it is harder for this generation to own a home? It is harder for this generation to make enough in wages to have the same lifestyle. And I'm defining this generation very loosely as maybe 30s, early 40s, that it's harder to get to the same place that their parents were at this time. Is it maybe a comparative from decades ago, or is it just, we're really not reading the tea leaves well right now? I think there's a few things going on. One, there's a large element of partisanship, and it's disproportionate to Republicans, but you see it on both sides. But the the views of the economy just plummeted among Republicans as soon as Biden got in the White House. Um, so that obviously it wasn't anything, maybe they thought he was going to do that. That's entirely possible, but it wasn't anything that had actually happened. So, so partisanship clearly plays a very big role. You also have the echo chamber. I don't watch Fox News often, but I do sometimes. And it, it's almost otherworldly. They're going, oh, you know, this happened and, you know, it's uh, crimes through the roof. So every bad thing you can possibly say, often with literally no grounding in reality. So that gets emphasized. Now, most people don't watch Fox News, uh, but... I think there has been a real bias, even in you know, places like the New York Times, National Public, which are considered good news outlets, and it's really disturbing there, for bad news. Now, we had bad news. You know, we had the pandemic. There were supply chain disruptions. That were bad news. Um, but that largely got under control. But we kept seeing, even as everything's getting under control, always, can we find something bad in the story? It really seemed like they were looking for it. I don't know if they thought that was balance. I don't, you know, I don't know. I can't speak for their motives. But, but you know, I think the bad was being emphasized. Now, comparing um, where people are today, young people, uh, to where they were 20, 34 years ago, it really depends on your endpoints here. So we had this long period of real stagnation in living standards for the bulk of the population. And I date that from the 70s till really uh, around uh until very recently, 2015, 16, 17. And that's not that long a period. We start to see some improvements in living standards um, for a typical work or a typical person. Um, variety of factors led to that. But if we were comparing, you know, what was it like for someone in their 20s, 30s, 
back in the 60s compared to some of the 20s today. In a lot of ways, they would have had it much better. You know, again, you've got to be cautious because it's a very different world. I mean, okay, I have a smartphone. I use it all the time. You know, most people would say that. You know, they, you didn't have a smartphone in the 60s. I mean, I'm just holding that up as an example. But there's a lot of there are a lot of things we just take for granted today, and we couldn't imagine any of us doing without that didn't exist in the 60s. So I don't want to say that you know, okay, everything was great in the 60s, and also there's big racial gender dimensions to that. You know, a white male had it relatively good in the 60s. Um, black man, black woman, no, you know, so, so, but, you know, in terms of were you seeing improving living standards, 50s and 60s into the early 70s, we had, you know, we often heard of as golden age, things were clearly getting better and really getting better for everyone. So even though, you know, blacks had it worse than whites and women had it worse than men, um, they were, they were gaining as well. So, so you could talk about progress. And then we have this long period. The 70s, you had the stagnation associated with the OPEC price increases, other factors, and it's more complicated than that. But we had stagnation and inflation. And then Reagan came in, and we had policies that I would say were directly designed to redistribute income upward. And what that meant was most people saw very little benefit from the economic growth in the, in the 80s, I'd say the first half of the 90s. Second half of the 90s were good years. So people shared in that. That was a relatively short period. And then uh, in, in the first decade of this century, um, we had, you know, some gains, you know, before the Great Recession. And then this long period coming out of the Great Recession, that we weren't finally seeing gains till say, 215, 216, the end of that period. How much do economists look at decisions that the president and members of the House and the Senate make and think, why are you doing this? In the sense of, you just talked about Reaganomics. I certainly learned a little bit about that and supply side economics and how politically that makes sense. But economically, I don't think that it does actually make any sense. Again, depending on your goals. Is there, if you could wave a magic wand, is there a system where we have politicians having a lot less power over big economic decisions? Well, the question, who would you give it to? So as much as, you know, there's an old line attributed to Churchill saying democracy is a terrible system, but it's better than anything else. So, you know, it, we, we could all say we want the wise person. I want me to <laughs> call shots, you know. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you can talk about trying to take less, take power away from the politicians. And we do do that to some extent, but you have to ask, you know, how far do you want to go? So we have things like we have, you know, various regulatory agencies, you know, the Federal Trade Commission, economic, the, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Federal Reserve Board, um, all have some degree of autonomy from the political process. And arguably, that's a good thing. I mean, you, you don't want uh, the president at their whim. I know Donald Trump's saying he wants this, but I, I think not just because Donald Trump, I wouldn't want anyone to just be constantly like, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency makes a decision on where it's safe to drill or whatever it might be. The president just goes, no, 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 I don't like it. You know, here's what the decision is. No, there's a reason that people have expertise and they make those calls. Um, but at the end of the day, those, those agencies, the bureaucracies are answerable to politicians. You know, they just have to do it in some order of the way. So if we thought the Environmental Protection Agency was being ridiculously lax or ridiculously strict, whichever. Well, Congress changes the law. They tell them, you know, they follow, they generally follow the law. 
So, you know, I don't, I don't think in general, I would like to say I'd take, like to take the power away from you know, the, the democratically elected uh, office holders. I mean, I might often not like what they're doing, but I, 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 don't, I don't think there's a better system where I can say, okay, I want these people over here to have all the say. It seems to me that there is this tension between people who have expertise and are making decisions that may or may not be politically popular, and then people who may not have the expertise, but they're, they are accountable to the voters, and their jobs, though, do depend on making decisions that are popular, at least in the short term. And when I think about economic decisions, it does seem to me that those things don't always point in the same direction. I, I take your point, though, of what's better. Yeah, no, it's, I'll give you a very concrete issue. Um, I could probably agree with 90% of economists in the country that a carbon tax would be a good idea. I mean, we recognize global warming is real. This is a debatable point. It sort of kills me when people say there's a dispute. No, the earth is round and we're getting global warming. You know, there's issues about the rate at which, you know, and you could argue, and I'm not a scientist, but I have read some of the stuff. So there's, I understand there's a range at which, but none of it's good. <laughs> it say that, you know, even if we take the low end of the range, we're not talking about a good story. Um, so, you know, we do have to do something to curtail global warming, and the carbon tax would be a great step. Not the only thing, but it, it would be a good thing. But would I, if I were an advisor to President Biden, I tell him, oh, go and push for a carbon tax. Now, I could see what happened in response to price increases, you know, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, people were, oh, my God, I can't pay. I understand. It's a burden on people. You know, you try to, if you were to have a carbon tax, you try to have some, you know, offsetting, whatever. I won't go into all the details. Point just being that a vast majority of economists, again, across the political spectrum, would say a carbon tax is a good idea. But politically, nowhere. It's a, it's a total non-starter. You know, you might get some members of Congress and say, you know, I agree with you, but I'm not going to give up my seat. I'm not going to, you know, so, so yeah, that, that's when it comes up. This actually brings up something I'm always curious about when it comes to people who have deep expertise in an area that politicians do make decisions about, which is you said, you know, if I were advising President Biden and one of the things you mentioned was a carbon tax. And you talked about why it would be useful, but why it's politically a non-starter. Let's take the politics out of it. As an economist, what are the three things that you wish that we could do today? Well, having raised the issue of a carbon tax, I guess I would include that because I, I do think we have to do everything we can, I would say, to stop global warming. That would be part of the story, clearly. Um, another area where I've done some work, and I don't think you can overstate the has changed the way we finance prescription drug research. So we have this absurd story where we pay up the wazoo for prescription drugs. Now, most people have insurance or the government, if you have Medicare, Medicaid, so they're not paying out of pocket. But um, some are, of course, and even if you have insurance, they don't want to pay $40,000 for, well, the, the big story here is drugs are actually cheap. You know, so, so what does it cost to manufacture a drug to bring it to the patient? Almost invariably, that's cheap. The reason why these drugs are expensive is because we give drug companies patent monopolies. So we tell we tell people, okay, you know, here's this new drug, we'll go be it's apparently a very effective weight loss drug. You know, a lot of people have issues, obesity. It's a good, great thing, I think. But it's very expensive. And that's because the company that produces has a monopoly. And if someone else were to produce it, they'd get arrested. So 
So that's that's a problem. Now, the, the logic, of course, of giving them the patent is that that gives them an incentive to innovate. Well, we could do this a different route. The government already spends over $50 billion a year on biomedical research, mostly through the National Institutes of Health. Triple that. And then we don't need to give private companies patent monopolies. We could spend another $100 billion on research. We go ahead and produce the drugs, you know, and develop the drugs directly in government funding. And then everything would be available as a cheap generic. And that would save somewhere in the order of $400 billion a year. And let me just put that in terms so people might understand. That's $3,000 a family per year. That's just an enormous sum. We have so many debates in Washington over amounts that are less than one-tenth that size. So that, that to my mind, would be a huge, huge deal. Let's see. My, my menu, I have so many things I'd like to do. You put me in charge. Don't limit it to three then. The app, so we have carbon tax, we have prescription drugs, which for so many reasons dealing with structural problems in our government, I think, is not moving right now, um, but makes all the sense in the world and makes economic sense. Yeah, no, I'd certainly argue that. Let me throw in a couple more then. Um, certainly financial transactions tax. And again, this is both the direct impact, but also how we think about the financial sector. So uh, I've obviously had arguments on this many, many times. Financial sector is very important. We need a financial sector, you know, run our banking for uh, businesses to raise capital. But the point is we should want the financial sector to be as small as possible. It's an intermediate good. So it, it, it's like trucking. So if we had trucking side, trucking industry that was five times the size it currently is, we'd all go, oh, you have a really inefficient trucking industry. What are they doing? You know, why, why is it so big? Are they getting stuff from point A to point B quicker? Do we have less stuff spoiled? Well, if that were true, then okay, maybe. Um, with finance, it's quintuple relative to the size of the economy in the last half century. And you go, okay, do we have a more secure financial system? Do we think it's safer? You know, we don't have to worry about things like, you know, the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Yeah, you, you couldn't answer that. You couldn't answer yes to that, I should say. So we want to downsize the financial industry. And the modest financial transactions tax would be a great way to, to start. Again, there's many, many other things I have, tighter regulations on sort of speculative um, investments, you know, we've had this whole array of, uh, of uh, derivatives, many of which it's very hard to see what purpose they serve. Uh, Bitcoin and the other uh, cyber currencies, you know, that's just a great example. Of what what purpose do they serve? I mean, so so again, I don't make any of these things illegal, but you know, we should have um, regulations on friendly. I always make the analogy to gambling: we don't outlaw it, but we tax it. You know, which I think is totally appropriate to do. Um, so, so that would be another area. Um, I'll just mention one other area that I think deserves more attention than it gets. We've seen an explosion of CO pay. So if you go back to the 60s and 70s, CO pay was 20 or 30 times the pay of an ordinary worker. Today, it's around 300 times, two to 300 times. And it's not because our CEOs are so much smarter and, you know, more hardworking. You know, I'm sure most of them are pretty smart and I'm sure most of them work hard, but that was true 50 years ago. So why is it that they get so much more? My answer, at least, is that it's because we have a corrupt corporate governance structure. So we know if you have an assembly line worker, UAW, there's someone there. You know, management goes, oh, I'm not going to pay you more money. You're not worth it. You know, same for a retail clerk, whatever, you know, normal jobs you think of people holding. Who tells the CEO you're not worth the money? Well, ostensibly, it's the board of directors who act on behalf of the shareholders. Well, the board of directors largely own the 
owe their jobs to CEO and other top management. That's how they get it. And they're literally almost never voted out by shareholders. So if someone, if a, if a director, they're up for re-election, they're nominated by the board, so they have to be nominated by the board. If they're nominated by the board, they literally win more than 99% of the time. So you go, okay, you're a director. It's a pretty cushy job. People I know, people have done it, people have written about it. You get paid several hundred thousand a year for a free job, 200 hours of work. That's pretty good pay. Well, you know how you got your job. You know how everyone else got your job. You're not likely to say, hey, you know, look at the CEO. You know, they're not so great. Couldn't we get away with paying them $5 million less or maybe find someone else who could do as good a job for $5 million? That's a way to get piss off your fellow board members. You want to you wanna be get along. You want to, you know, hold your job. So I think we have to try and change the governance structure in a way that does give boards incentives to crack down on CEOs. And you can think of different ways to do it. I mean, a simple one that I've been talking about, I don't know, who knows if it work or not. We already have sand pay votes. This came with Dodd-Frank. So every three years, the compensation package of CEO is sent out to shareholders for approval. If they vote it down, it's an embarrassment, but nothing happens. It's not binding, nothing happens. What I'd like to see is you go, go ahead, send those out to shareholders. If it's voted down, the directors lose their pay. So that would get their attention. And, and, you know, my guess, and who knows, we'd have to see what happened if he actually did this, is that if you just had one or two cases where that happened, I think you'd see directors start asking the question they don't ask now. Can we get away with paying the CEO less? And let me just say a little bit more because I've raised this with people and they go, Oh, okay. You know, so how many CEOs are there? You know, five, the, you know, Fortune 500, 500 CEOs, right? You know, okay. So what would their pay big deal? Well, no, it goes way beyond that. Cause if you have the CEO getting, you know, 30 million, the chief financial officer next year, they're getting 10, 15 million. The third echelon, they're getting two or three million. Now let's snap our fingers. We're in a different world. We go back 50 years. They're getting 20 to 30 times the pay of ordinary workers. So now they're getting three million, let's say. Next in line. Two million, the third echelon, maybe they crack a million, maybe high hundred thousand. That affects pay structures throughout the economy. So if you had, you know, the top CEOs, the CEOs getting two or three million rather than 30 million, you'd have a very, very different pay structure throughout the economy. So I think it's a really big deal. And it's also, you know, again, I have arguments with people where they somehow have this being serving shareholders. I mean, how it's serving shareholders to pay your direct your, your CEOs more than you have to, and then you know the other top management. So, so the idea that there's actually a separation of interest between the CEO and other other top management shareholders, people find it hard to accept. You just go look at it. How how do they have an interest in overpaying them any more than they would have an interest in overpaying you know the assembly line worker or retail clerk? They don't. So you know, and again, I love to make that argument. Conservatives go. What's wrong with giving shareholders more control of the companies they're supposed to own? So this is fascinating to me in the sense that I think people understand, most people have read that CEO pay as compared to the average worker's pay has, there's much more distance between the two, as you mentioned. And you talked about corrupt corporate government structure. And you talked about one solution. I'm fascinated to hear what are the other things you think we should try and do? Well, I got a long list. I mean, I'd love to see more competition for highly paid professionals. So we talked about globalization a little bit earlier. Um, we structured globalization to put downward pressure on the wages of manufacturing workers. 
So we made sure our steel workers, textile workers on down the list, they have to compete with low priced imports from China, from Philippines, India, wherever it might be, which puts downward pressure on their wages. That's economic theory. And we've seen that in practice. So we've lost millions of manufacturing jobs and the ones that are there pay less than they used to. So, you know, that, that, that's what's happened. Now, we could do that with more highly paid workers. We could have more competition for doctors, uh, dentists, lawyers, other highly paid professions and put downward pressure on their pay. The average doctor in this country gets $360,000 a year. It's a lot of money. Um, you know, they, if we had more competition, doctors in, in Germany, France, they get less than half that. Um, so, and they're very good doctors. It's not like I'm talking about bringing in people who don't know what they're doing. You can get plenty of very competent doctors much lower pay. So I'd love to see us do that. Um, another area that I've done some writing on, I do think is important, is with um, the, the uh, internet platform, something like Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, we have the provision Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It states back to 1996. And what it, that provision uh, allows is that the internet platforms don't have the same liability for defamation let's say print media or broadcast media were. So we just saw this case where Fox was sued for defamation. They ended up settling for like 787 million, I think it was, with Dominion, the voting machine company, because they lied about it. They said that they'd rigged the elections and that. Anyhow, a lot of that suit involved not Fox employees, but people they had on the air. You know, so it was said, okay, you're liable for that. Well, if those people had gone on Twitter, and some of them probably did, you know, Twitter and Facebook and said the exact same thing, Twitter and Facebook couldn't be held responsible. So I'd like to see that changed both in a way that I, you know, I think is fair. I mean, I think they should be responsible, but also I think would lead to downsizing Twitter and Facebook because I think it is a real problem when you have someone like Elon Musk. I mean, not just to pick on you, not an Elon Musk fan, but it doesn't matter who owns Twitter. They shouldn't have that much power. You know, they're going to decide that they, they like this, they don't like that. They're going to have, you know, the Jews will not replace us. Elon Musk endorsed that and said, right on, you know, but, uh, you know, the other things there, he's banning. So um, I, I'd love to see those those platforms downsized. I'm not sure if that's the only way to do it, but I think that is one way to do it. So so those are some of the things on my list. I could <laughs> go on and on. I mean, you don't have that much time, but uh, those are some of the things on my list. Unfortunately, that's right. I think we don't have that much time, but I would love to remind people of your book, Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And I think we've talked about some of them, but are there some other aspects of the book that you would like to highlight in terms of what are those rules that are creating this inequality that you want people to understand? Well, I earlier talked about drug patents. Patent and copyrights in general are a really, really big deal in the economy. And again, this is not widely recognized. So this is a major source of inequality. So I mentioned drugs being expensive. It's a huge amount of money we pay. But that's, that's true for many other products. Software, obviously. Software, we'd all get free, basically, if they didn't have patents or copyrights on the software. So there's a lot of products that are very expensive because the government puts these monopolies in place. And it is a big factor in, in income distribution. So just uh, with the pandemic, we um, we basically paid Moderna, the new, relatively new company, we paid them to develop a COVID vaccine, which they did, and that was great. But then we gave them control over it. So we paid them to develop it. Then we give them a monopoly control over it, and we created five Moderna billionaires. So... 
So you go, okay, we wonder why we have inequality. The, the other great example here, I always hold up Bill Gates as my poster child here. He's one of the richest people in the world. He was at one time the richest person, I guess now four or five. I don't know where he sits in the ratings, but you know, still tremendously wealthy. Well, if, if we didn't give Microsoft patents and copyright monopolies on its software, Bill Gates would probably still be working for a living. You know, I'm sure he's a sharp guy and he'd do fine, but, you know, he would not be one of the richest people in the world. So so those are some of the things on my list. So the, the point I, I make throughout that book is the market doesn't produce inequality. The market, we should think of the market, I, I've used this analogy, I think it's appropriate. We should think of the market as a tool. It's like the wheel. And we can do all sorts of things with the wheel. It's a great innovation. Market, same thing. And we can structure it so that it leads to relatively equal outcomes. Or we could structure it so all the money goes to those at the top. And that has been done in the last half century by conscious policy. It wasn't just, you know, we just threw things up in the air and let the chips go. No, we structured it in ways, and again, be careful with we. It's not that you and I, uh, to my knowledge, you were, you know, in on planning these things. But, you know, we structured the laws, our politicians structured the laws so that a grossly disproportionate share of the money would go to those at the top. Dr. Dean Baker, that's has been really useful for me in thinking through some of the questions I have about the economy, what has contributed to inequality, what has contributed to our feelings about the economy. And I hope that you'll come back when things maybe in the economy look different and or when the next election cycle has been completed and talk to us about more things that you want us to think through and or what the state of the economy looks like then. Sure thing. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me on. 